You keep trying to ramp it up. Huh? <laughs> Hold on. Take three. You ready? Hello, John Schuler. How's that for ramped up? Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, Brandon. Hello, John. <laughs> I can bring awesome, it, buddy. Man. I can bring it. Yeah. Let's yeah, do it. For a minute, anyway. Then yeah. you run out of steam and I'll take a nap. No, I can, <clears throat> I can keep this going all day. One uh, of my favorite, yeah. I used to have this guy that worked for me, Sean, and you met Sean. He's like such a calm yeah, yeah. guy. Sean. Yeah, I love Sean yep. too. So calm. I'd love to sneak up behind him. I'd tiptoe up behind him and go, Woo! right behind him and just watch him crawl out of his skin. It was so fun. Anyways. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> People think this is like, we're just doing this for the podcast. No, this is like every phone call you and I have is just like <laughs> this right now. What's going on, man? What's going on? What's going on? Well, let's, let's skip all the boring stuff. Let's just get right. right to the the meat of the matter. You ready? All right. Yeah. All right. I got a list so of we're things. We're just going to go right to the steak. We're not going to have no potatoes, mm. green mm. corn, beans, nothing. Just no. go right at it. Going Bring right it. at it. Going right at it. All right. So first on my list, marketing. Marketing. This is a wild card. I didn't tell you about this one. Let's talk nope. about marketing, John. Because somebody had a question on a on a forum page, and I thought it was an interesting question. It's one we've addressed before, but I think it's very, very important. Marketing is one of these things that it's a skill you develop. You're not inherently good at it. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. It takes time to get dialed in. But what I can tell yep. you is the number one most important thing you can do is make innovative products. Number one, if you're not making things people want to buy, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is, nobody's going to respond. So focus on design. Number one. Number two is photography, the quality of photography. If you make the most amazing whatever, let's say you make an amazing uh, planter, but you take a photo of it with your iPhone and the photo is crappy, it's fluorescent lighting, there's trash on the floor around it, whatever, you're not going to convey your value to the client. You're not going to be able to say, this is a $5,000 planter. They're going to look at the photo and, and put you at a much different level of professionalism and quality. So number one, design. Design is everything. Design is everything. Two words. Number two, photography. Photography is critical. Do not go out and buy a fancy camera and think you're a photographer because you're not. If your photographer, your professional photographer, goes out and buys a concrete mixer and thinks, oh, I can do what you do, he can't. The tool doesn't make the artisan. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to get somebody that is skilled in the profession of photography. And there's levels. There's levels. You can get somebody fresh out of community college, you're going to get what you pay for. I made that mistake. I tried to save some money. Oh, yeah, no, you got your... You get your degree in photography? Great, yeah, come on over. And they have to rent all their equipment, and they show up, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a total catastrophe. The photos suck. They bill you as if they're a professional. So, what's going on over there? You fall down? No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good now. Did you just pass out? Now. What happened? <laughs> I told you, man, I got all kinds of stuff going on at my house. Even the chops jacked up. See, now you got me on it. And right now, so there's a, I had no idea this was going on. So right now I'm hearing nothing but vacuums and stuff going on. So I'm hiding in the bedroom and apparently my cat feels like, well, that's time that she needs attention. And I'm like, oh my God, man. For God's sakes, what is going on here? I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. So anyway. And you fell off your chair, which is. And I fell off my chair because I'm like, Jesus, cry me. But... <laughs> and then I reached over and I tried to hit mute and that didn't work. Yeah, yeah I'm good. Well, I'm good, man. I'm all right. Luckily, I can mute you. So I will mute you <laughs> from here. Anyways, photography. Photography is critical. And then the next thing is just going to be how you present yourself to the client. And that is done through your marketing kit 
through your collateral you send them. Again, do not try to, you know, get an Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop and design your own collateral. You know, you can find pretty good designers pretty in any town. There's going to be somebody that's good at graphic design and hire that person to put together your collateral, your brochure, your business card, your whatever, your letterhead. And then when you reach out to a client, you have the appearance of being a professional concrete artisan. So that's my advice. What's your advice, John? Well, that's definitely the foundation, but I, I, I think so much depends on, I mean, don't get me wrong. I agree with you with the photography you got. I mean, you have to put your foot best foot forward you know, I mean, as example, you're talking about planners and we're just using that as an example. Well, if you take a picture with your planner half full with old dirt and there's, you know, cigarette butts being put out in it, you know, I mean, it's, it's not conveying, well, maybe it is conveying what somebody wants it to, but I mean, that's not the photo if you want to charge good money. So a hundred percent on the, on the photography website, but at the end of the day, I think what gets lost in translation with a lot of guys isn't that they don't understand they should get better photography and they don't understand they need a website. It's like, where do you go beyond that? Um, Cause those are definitely the foundations, but where do you go find, you know, maybe you, you don't, maybe you live in a small town like I do with, you know, 2,500 people and you know, the next towns are an hour and 30 minutes from you. So from that point on, I think the difficulty for most people is finding your reach and finding your groove. For me personally, what I did is, you know, went to the design centers to the point that I said this many times. Now I only work with two designers that actually work out of that design center. Um, but prior to that, and I guess what I'm saying is that's how I met them. I, I literally just went in there. I walked in. I'm not saying I presented myself as anything different and, you know, asked for help. I was looking around. What do you do with concrete? Oh, we really don't do anything with concrete. And like, well, would you like to? And that's where the conversation started. So that's what I did. I mean, I, you know, and that, so I guess what I'm saying is for the person listening, you've done a lot more, I mean, true marketing than I ever have. I think we all know that. So beyond the foundations of photography and maybe website, what's your recommendation to get the the reach further out? Innovation. Innovation. Yeah? If if you are making squares and you're trying to market them as revolutionary, you're not going to get any traction, you're not going to get any reach. Doesn't matter how good your website is, how good your logo is, how good your photography is, if you're just making squares. But if you come out with a very beautiful planter and you get it photographed well, and you're right, staging is important. You know, I photographed a lot on white backdrops. And we did that because my photographer in Phoenix that would come to my shop, you know, it was just we'd have four or five pieces shipping out to a client. We'd set up a white backdrop, which little tip, little tip for anybody listening is you go down to a flooring store and you get any color vinyl flooring and the backside is like an off-white gray color and you just hang it up you roll it up backwards essentially or forwards it doesn't matter but when you pull it down you have that white side facing the camera and uh, it's actually better than the paper backdrops you can buy because the camera can autofocus better on a light gray versus a white and uh, another thing is if there's any footprints or whatever you can take those out and post and then i bought a really really long roll and I'd pull it out, and after a while, when it gets really dirty, we'd just cut off that section, and then we'd, you know, next time it would be a little bit shorter, but if you buy like a 40-foot roll, it's probably enough to last you for 10, 15 years of doing that. But if you can get it in context, even better. So if you can get that planter at somebody's really nice house next to the pool, even better is if there's like some models in the background, you know, that kind of thing. You add life to the photo, even better. But back to what is most important, in my opinion, is the innovation of the design. That is what's going to get traction. People are like, oh, I want it to go viral. I, you know, I want to do all these things. You can't make those things happen. The, what right. goes, quote unquote, viral or what gets a lot of traction 
is design. And so we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it. We talk about the importance of respecting other people's IP, of developing your own style, of putting in the effort. And this is largely why. Because if you want to expand your reach, if you want to get in with the high-end designers and architects, you need to be doing things they respond to. And they don't respond to what's been done and it's just meat and potatoes, you know? If that's what you do, then you might have a reach of maybe 20, 30 miles from your location of builders that will spec you for, you know, oh, we're doing a restaurant. We need a concrete sink. Oh, we're doing an office. We need a reception counter. Okay, great. That's as far as it's going to go. Nobody across the country is going to reach out to you for a project. So design, 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 design. And there's a thousand ways to approach that. The one that I recommend the most and what I found success with is go down and get a notebook, just plain white paper. I have a a moleskin one that you can get at any bookstore. And then every morning, go get a coffee at a coffee shop and sketch a design, a design a day. So every day you just force yourself. It doesn't matter how stupid it is. Just sit there, think of something that could be done in concrete. And dude, I have a book full of hundreds of designs and some of them are really good that just came from this exercise. But I mean, it could be anything. You could be sitting there and you're like noticing that the umbrellas, they're in a stupid little cast aluminum stand. You're sitting outside at Starbucks. And you're like, man, I could do a really cool concrete umbrella holder. That's Nobody's done something like what I'm thinking of. I could do that. So you, you sketch a little design. Great. Next day you're sitting there, you're looking. You're looking at the numbers on the building. I mean, look at these stupid numbers. Are made of plastic? Dude, I could do concrete numbers with a really slick attachment system. And so you do a little design of that. And every day you just do another design, you do another design. No matter how stupid it is, how great it is, you just, you go through the practice. It's the effort and the energy of forcing yourself to do one every single day, no matter what. And through that process, if you do that for a year, you're going to have some real winners in there. And then you can take that and, and build upon it. So in my opinion, that's going to be the best way to develop something that's unique to you, no matter how good your website is, your marketing is, your logo is, your photography is, it all comes down to what it is that is on your website, that's in your photos. That's what's going to sell more than anything. And that's what's right. going to get reach more than anything. No matter, you go buy a list from some company that sells lists of architects and designers. It doesn't matter. You can reach out to them. If you're just selling a square, they're not going to, they're not going to even give you the time of day. So that's my opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, and from my point of view, you have a lot more input than I I ever would because I'm, I'm on the other end of it. I've never, I mean, shoot, if you go to my creative, I'm talking, it was just a minute ago. I was telling my web guy, man, shut it down. I don't even need it anymore. I don't use it anymore. I don't think I've even updated it since the time my brother was here and I let him do it. I'm so bad with that stuff. but at the same time, I have, and maybe I will transition, you know, my business into something like that later, meaning where I need a reach further than what this one design center does with me. You know what I mean? And that to me, I just think is from my point of view, it's very unique when I've seen and talked to other businesses that have you know, like, like you are, you know, you have clients in different States and some of the other guys, you know, they, they got a whole set of molds and they're casting all these different things for different people. They never see them, meaning the people and they're shipping everything out. And I mean, that's a very unique for me to even consider. So I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. So that's my advice. That's my advice. Take it for what it's worth, but that's what it is. Uh, next in my list, John, transporting concrete, transporting concrete. Somebody was moving some stair treads and I had a question. And I have a couple different thoughts on this. First, if you're doing something like stair treads and you're going to use a pallet, the way I've done it, and it's not the right way, it's not the wrong way, it's just the way I've done it, is I'll screw two by fours to one side of the pallet. Let's say the stair treads are 12 inches deep, right? Mm. So I'm going to stand them up on edge. So it's going to be 12 inches high. And uh, so I'll cut two by fours that will stand up above the stair treads. Let's say I cut two by fours to 16 inches. So I screw two two by fours vertically on one side of the pallet. 
I put foam flat on the pallet first. I put foam against those uprights and I put a stair tread against the foam. And then I put another piece of foam and another stair tread and another piece of foam and another stair tread. And I'm doing everything on edge like glass. So boom, 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 all the way across. When I get to the other side of the pallet, when I get to the edge of the pallet, then I put a piece of foam and then I screw two more two by four uprights that again are sticking up, let's say 18 inches. And then across, I'll, I'll squeeze them really tight together. I usually have a helper. I'll squeeze the stair treads and then I'll screw two by fours that kind of bridge those uprights. So it goes from this side to that side and I screw into the uprights. And the whole reason uprights are there is just to squeeze it all together and hold it together. And so then once that's done, it's locked in pretty good. Then I'll use a pallet jack or a forklift to load it into a trailer or into a moving truck. If you're going to do the, 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 the cam talk. If you're going to do the, the delivery, definitely get a moving truck. It's worth the cost. Add it into your delivery fee, but get a, a moving truck with a lift gate. So when you get to the site, you can use a pallet jack and pull it, pull it off on a lift gate, lower it down, pull it onto their driveway or wherever they are. So that's how I've done it, and it's worked out well. Now, that is for something on a pallet. If I'm going to ship something, I build a crate. And when I build a crate, I build it. I use three quarter inch plywood. I don't use OSB or anything like that. I use three quarter inch plywood. I use half inch foam and I build a crate to where the piece is vertical inside the crate as tight as it can be. I mean, it cannot move a millimeter because if it can move inside the crate, it could break. If it's going down the road and that crate's bouncing up and down and inside that crate, the thing is bouncing up and down, whatever it is, a sink, a tread, whatever, there, that's what's going to create the forces that will break it. So if you can wedge it in there as tight as you can get it, and then you ship it like that, it, it's going to be a lot more protected. And um, whenever I do a crate, you have to essentially almost build a pallet on the underside. So I use four by fours to create the space for the forks to go underneath. And then I put either two buys or plywood scraps under that. So A, it lowers the, the friction uh, coefficient. So if it's just a four by fours, there's a lot of surface area touching the concrete. And if you try to push that crate, it's got a lot of resistance. But if I put some strips, just two by fours that I screw up on the very, very bottom, then it's a lot less surface area. So I can push it a lot easier around my shop. And secondly, when I pick it up with a forklift, if I hit a bump and it wants to fall forward, roll forward, those two by fours on the bottom catch the blades and keep it from flipping off the forks. I've received plenty of pallets over the years to my shop that just have four by fours, but no piece on the very, very bottom. And it's super sketchy because when you pick it up with your forklift and you're driving, um, you hit a little bump, it, it could just bounce right off the forks. So anyways, that's my advice. I have a video on the Kodiak Pro website, paid tutorials, and I show how I build my crate and there's a full breakdown and you can see my screenshot of, uh, of my cut list essentially. But um, that's how I do it. What's your view, John? Well, I, I'm going to say I agree with everything you just said. Where I would change that up for me would be I would use blankets again because and I have I've done well I've only done three projects with stair treads but um, I stacked them very similarly except instead of on the side I stacked them on their normal horizontal and then I just used plenty of blankets and the ones that did get shipped yeah the blankets were just uh, put into the cost of the project but my reason for that is this. There's too many times, I mean, this goes way back, hasn't, obviously I haven't done it in years and years and years where if I had foam in contact with fresh pieces, sometimes anything related to the foam, you know, me mean the size or how it was touching the concrete or what it, it then left a ghost mark of some sort in the corner or, you know, a square cube that it sat on, whatever the case may be. So for me, the whole foam in contact with the concrete's a no-go. I mean, unless it's on the back, but something to me needs to be on the face. And I either like the nine pound blankets, moving blankets, or I like picking up the quilt batting, the heavy quilt batting, uh, polyester or the cotton. It doesn't matter from like a, a fabric store. They come in a big roll. It's super inexpensive. It's very easy to cut. So that, other than that, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. Well, you made a really good point, and one I did not address, which is if you do the foam, you want the foam. So I'm using um, EPS, expanded polystyrene. It's the white beads. It's what you see at Home Depot Lowe's, and it, I get the half-inch thickness. 
but you want the white side, not the foil side. There's a foil side that has printing on it, that has blue lettering typically. Right. You want the white side to actually come in contact with the exposed surface of the concrete. So whatever's going to be exposed, you want white against that. Secondly, you don't want to just do a little piece of foam. So if I'm doing a stair tread that's, say, three feet across, I'm not going to put a two-foot piece of foam in the middle so there's a foot that's not covered, yeah, no. so six inches yeah, yeah. on each side, because that will do what you're saying. It will create a ghost of where that foam was. So when I do foam, it makes complete contact with that surface. So if I'm doing a stair tread, it goes all the way from edge to edge, top to bottom, and that way there's no ghosting of where foam was. I've done blankets. I'm not anti-blanket. The problem is when you're doing a lot of things like stair treads, you end up with a lot of this uh, excess fabric sticking out the sides and top and bottom. It just becomes a big mess. So right. I have... Well, that's what I said. That's why I like the quilt batting because then I can cut... I just cut that to shapes. Yeah, that's a good and idea. sometimes, I mean, at least on the one project I did it on, which again was stair treads, by the way, then I just cut pieces the the same whatever dimension of the face of the and then and then smashed everything in between just so there was some breathe you know some amount of of breathability yeah no that's a good all. point you know when i've done blankets it's when i've shipped some kind of awkward piece i'll wrap the piece in blankets and then i'll wrap that with shrink wrap to really tighten that blanket and keep it in contact and then i still put it in a crate lined with foam and I block it in with foam really tight, and then I ship it that way. It's always when it's an awkward-shaped piece that, that is a little bit difficult to begin with. And that's why I've done that. But um, that's a good point, John. And now, then I it, haven't used it, but... And again, I'm just now thinking out loud, and I can't even think of the name of it. But I do know they make that foam. I think it's a two-part. And like you... I've used it. You You spray it into the bag, and then you... Well, very quickly set the bag and then it expands to whatever shape it's trying to fill. Yeah. So they have, that's, that's a very expensive setup. The one where you spray it in, that's for like a factory where they're oh. doing that whole thing where they essentially lay plastic in and they put the foam on the back and they fold the plastic over and then close the box and hold it shut while it expands. Right. The ones that I have, you can buy them, oh man, I'm trying to think, like Instapack, P-A-K, I think is the name of the company. I bought, I bought them on Uline, I want to say. But um, they work okay. I, I bought a bunch of different densities and I tried them. They never seem to work that great. They kind of shake loose. So those, they, you crack them. So in the pack, there's the two part and you crack it open, kind of like a, a glow stick. You crack it open and then you stick it in wherever it's going to go. And it, you see it expand, right? But it's in a pre, huh. it's in a sealed bag essentially. So it can't come out. And, um, but you end up using 10 of them. Each one's like five bucks. You end up using 10 of them to lock it in. And when it's all said and done, you kind of shake it around a little bit and they just fall off. You're like, damn it. Oh, well, cool. yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that's a cool idea. I think you really need that kind of professional factory setup if you're going to go that route where you put the whole plastic in and you spray foam all over it. You know, So this one big piece of foam that's expanded. Yeah, yeah. And it just packs. It gets in every nook and cranny. But yeah, I've never looked at it. But you're right. Maybe it's an industrial-sized thing that people like us just aren't going to use. Yeah, not for a one-off. I mean, if you're going to ship a ton of stuff in a day, it might make sense, but probably still not. And then they have the two-part foams you can you can buy and mix in different densities, and you could probably do it yourself, but gauging volumes could get a little bit crazy. Right. So anyways, and then on top of that, Uline, U-L-I-N-E dot com, dot com, Uline, is where I get all my, my shipping supplies. So on Uline, they have things called shock watches, which essentially are little seismic sensors you can put on the side of your crate. And if they drop the crate, it breaks a little vial, turns red. I put those on my crates. They have tilt watches. They have a little ink. So if they tilt the crate over on its back and flip it back upright, it'll fill with red ink and it'll, it'll show up. The secret with those is the freight companies carry those as well. And if they jack your crate up, they just pull the broken one off and stick a new sticker on yeah, it, right? Stick a new one. <laughs> so, so what man. you got to do is I initial them, and I initial them so my initials go across the sticker onto the crate, right? It's going to be really hard for somebody to forge what I did. So I'll across it. I take a photo of it. 
I take a photo of the crate. I take a photo of the crate going onto the truck. I take a photo of the truck with the license plate in the side of the truck so I can see that it says RNL or XPO or whatever it is. And if I do all those things, if they show up on the site, which this has not happened, fortunately, but if they show up on the site and everything's busted inside, but the stickers were different, I can show video, I can show uh, photo evidence that they changed the stickers. What I have had happen is things show up on the site and the crate's busted and the stickers are completely gone. They just ripped them off, right? So I have mm-hmm. had that happen. But it's good to photograph everything just to have evidence. They're going to say, how do we know it didn't leave like that? You know, I had FedEx do that to me years ago. FedEx Freight, that's a, that was the only time I ever used FedEx Freight. I shipped a sink. They tried to, to deliver it to the client. The sink was in a wood crate, three-quarter inch plywood, the whole thing. They tried to deliver the... He came out to take delivery. He, the FedEx guy opened up the back of the truck. It's a semi-truck. And the sink is laying... The sink itself, concrete, is laying face down on the metal bed of the truck. And uh, he's like, no, I'm not going to accept that. I mean, it was busted up, right? It'd been sliding. The guy drove who knows how long with the sink just sliding back and forth. Every time he hit the brakes, it slid Dude, forward. Surprised 20 feet. He did just roll up the door and start laughing. <laughs> I mean, come on now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So FedEx delivered it back to me. And the driver pulls up because <laughs> he refused it. So the driver pulls up and, um, you know, opens up the back. And there's my sink laying there. But there's a FedEx ratchet strap around it. It says FedEx, 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 printed on the ratchet strap. And there's like a one foot square of my wood crate that they'd ratcheted to the sink. So they just ratcheted like whatever's left of the crate to the sink. And so the guy pulls up. I'm like, what the hell is this? He's like, what's, what's your sink? I was, like, I was like, dude, this isn't the way it left. He's like, we don't know that. How do we know it didn't leave this way? I'm like, you wouldn't have, dude. I don't have a ratchet strap that says FedEx on it. And you guys wouldn't have taken delivery had it been like this. He's like, well, you don't have any proof. This is what he said. This is what the driver said. And he made a great point. So always photograph. Photograph the piece going into the crate. Photograph it before it goes into the crate so you can see it. Photograph it going into the crate. Photograph the crate closed. Photograph the crate with the label on it and your seismic stickers or whatever you put on it. Photograph it being loaded on the truck. Do all those things to document this is the way it left. And this is what it was before it went in the crate. So when it shows up and it's broken in two, you can show it wasn't like that when we loaded it in. So these are all important things because the freight companies, the, the, their insurance adjusters, they do everything they can to fight a claim. Yeah. Well, everything. that's their job. Yeah. Yeah. That's their job. Yeah. Plain and simple. But to add to all that agony, because we've run into it and so have some of the um, Kodiak Pro customers, and I'm sure they've hit it with other people. Also, when you do set up the freight, and this is something new to me too, you, you really have to check and see what the insurance, whatever rates or, you know, another, what, what is actually going to be covered should something happen? Because, you know, I think in the past we've all taken for granted that whatever, let's say you ship something for 300 bucks. Well, of course, not only are they going to cover the $300 in shipping if something got damaged, they're also going to, you know, take care of the whatever was shipped. But that's not true. And we have found that time and time again that when somebody ships something, and I'm going to go the, the wild side of, you know, whatever, a $5,000 piano, let's say. And then when it shows up, just like you're saying, nothing more than a ratchet strap and getting you know, like, oh, well, but you only get a $200 value back. So that's something everybody make sure they're checking that. We remember we had a couple customers that <laughs> when they lost pails of TBP, which the companies fully admitted, oh yeah, we dropped it, we destroyed it, whatever, we ran over it. Yep. So here's your ten bucks. Uh, yeah. What? Because they no, do it man, by that, pound. They they value exactly. things by weight. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're doing now, and I know this is you know now we're going a different direction. Now what we're doing is everything has to be listed on the bill of lading and an actual cost. Or they won't cover it for that. They'll give you whatever they're giving on whatever poundage rate or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So that's a be cool. aware of that. That's yeah. a great point because that happened to me. I shipped a sink that got that got destroyed, and uh, the insurance adjuster first did what they called fair market value, and the sink yeah. legitimately was like twelve thousand bucks. It was a crazy sink that I shipped, and it was a twelve thousand dollars sink. And they did a fair market value for concrete sinks. They hopped on and they just like, 
I'm sure they got on Etsy or something or Facebook or whatever. And they said, oh, the fair market value is $400. (laughs) I said, dude, here's the invoice from the client. Right? Sorry, dude. Yeah. And they're like, well, fair market value is this. I'm like, says you, this is what the client paid. This is what the sink is worth. And I went round and round. And the other thing was exactly that, was weight. So I had another shipment destroyed um, a long, long time ago. And the insurance, I didn't read the fine print, covered replacement value based on weight. So they gave X amount of, of dollars per yeah. pound, and it's not much. 25 cents a pound or yeah, something. Yeah, I mean, they assume yeah. you're shipping lead, and you know yeah. they're, they're going to give you nothing. Uh, so what I did when I was in Phoenix was I was using R&L at the time, and we would buy additional insurance outside of R&L, but R&L facilitated the insurance. But we would buy additional insurance. I'm, man, I'm trying to think who the agency was. Might, might have been Sotheby's was the insurer mm. that they used. But they, I'd have to send them a copy of the paid invoice to list the value because the values were way higher than their poundage rate that r would cover. And um, we'd buy an insurance policy on every single item we shipped based on that. And it was usually like 100 bucks more, right? But at least if that sink got damaged, at $12,000 sink, they would pay $12,000 because we have a policy for that amount, for that shipment. So that's something you want to look at too. Is, is possibly doing that. And then, you know, you brought it up, but always inspect a freight when it gets delivered. These, these freight drivers, they're so good uh, at hiding damage. They'll well, rewrap it. Well, and if it's it. not the driver themselves, yeah, it's whenever they hit the terminal, right? Wasn't it Joe? You know, Joe had one of his pallets show up and they're like, oh, no, that looks, that's, and you know, and he kind of looked at it like, yeah, it does look like it's been wrapped again, but nothing looks out of place. And sure enough, they had re- reloaded the pallet but only stacked it up properly like a like a wall a four-sided wall and then threw all the junk in the middle and it was you know so in other words he ended up like with 12 broken garbage bags i mean that's just crazy man yeah crazy. it's deceptive it's it's crap it's happened some to some other people's happened to me over the years to where things have showed up materials i've ordered showed up it looks pretty good but yeah they they've move things around. They've ripped open bags and they just spun them around and then rewrapped it. And he's not going to notice. Nobody's going to know. They're going to know. They're not going to know. So look at it. And if the driver's like trying to get out of there, screw that driver. It doesn't matter. And I've done Mm -hmm. that too, because, you know, once you accept it, it's on you. It's yours. Yeah. I've had drivers leave and, um, and I've contacted the freight company and just said, listen, I was inspecting the driver left. I never signed the BOL. I never accepted the shipment, you know? So there, there's that as well. So it's the driver's responsibility to wait until you accept it. There's no time frame. You don't have 30 seconds to look at it. You can take 10 minutes if you want to, to cut it open and dig through it and just make sure everything is there. And I encourage everybody to do that because once you sign that BOL that it was received, you've, yeah. you've accepted it, whatever For it is. anything. Yeah. Yeah. I had that happen on a tub when we were doing the remodel and AIM bought this. I mean, it wasn't over the top, but it was a very nice kind of soaking tub. And she likes to take baths. So, well, you know, the concrete tub from, kind of from what? Concrete works? Did you guys buy <clears throat> exactly. a concrete Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it was awesome. <laughs> it still works. But when this, when the, when it came, that's exactly. And the driver, man, you know, nothing against the guy, but he would, something felt off. He was like trying so hard, like, Hey, I got to go. You know, I'm like, well, get, wait a minute, man, because you know, I, I got it right here. If, if this is not inspected by me and I'm I, no, 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 I, you know, I don't have time for this. And then sure enough, all there was is it looked like a hole kind of in the side of the packaging, but you know, whatever, you know, crap can happen. I'm like, sorry, man. The, him and I, it was so funny because him and I argued longer than it would have taken me to just take the, the package apart. You know what I mean? So anyway, by the time, and sure enough, there's a big crack in it and this and that. So that's why he didn't want you to see it. Well, that's what I'm saying. Then it started me. And then I started just razzing him and I'm like, so let me tell you, did you drop this? Well, I'm like, because honestly, man, you were trying really hard. At least it felt like it to me to get out of my driveway as fast as you can to get me to sign it all the time. And, you and me both agree that that's cracked, right? So it wasn't just a hole. 
it like legitimately someone ran something through or dropped it or whatever. And I, I don't know, man. You know, I guess it's where we talk about other things. Sometimes it, it just becomes very frustrating. Even though we can all sit here and talk about doing your due diligence and getting all these extra insurances, this comes up, oh, make sure you get, you know, design patents, make sure you protect yourself, la, 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 la. You know, how about just everybody just fucking have some integrity and yeah. just teach each treat each other fairly. I mean, I can't imagine an LTL company as big as some of these companies are that, I mean, do they have that many problems that they're going to go bust over, you know, over one shipment? You know what I'm saying? Just like, come on, man. It, It just seems sometimes it just feels very frustrating that as a consumer, as a maker and everything we try to do, that you have to work twice as hard just to protect yourself than people just treating you fairly. Yep. I don't know. I, agree. I guess that's my little rant. <laughs> I agree, dude. <laughs> you know? Uh, anyway. Anyway. You ready? Next one? Let's go to the next one. SEC. I just wrote this down because you'd mentioned it that you wanted to talk about SEC. So what do you want to talk about? Well, SEC. You know, it's still... I shouldn't say still because I think that the, the the people doing it. So a new a newer person coming along will still bring up these questions, and it just came up again where someone was asking, "Hey, can I self consolidate a, a GFRC, or do I need to spray slash, you know, roll backer coats on, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera?" And there's still so much fear out there about exposing the glass fibers, which I I guess I understand, uh, but it really shouldn't be. It, it shouldn't be that scary to do self-consolidating. I mean, for for plenty of time now, mixes have been set up with great consistencies, plenty of fines that really are stable to create self-consolidating type of mixes. But along that, and I'm just bringing it up again, make sure that depending on what fibers, glass fibers, bundle fibers you're using, Owens Corning, in our experience, not our opinion, but in our experience, the Owens Corning fibers are fi- far superior for SCC than, um, meaning the ghosting, than any of the other ones. And and then what else? Um, high fines, you know, plenty of fines if that's possible. So, you know, Makers Mix and Rad Mix have been designed around this kind of criteria specifically because as one of the uses, which is you, uh, Brandon Gore, you know, we took, continue to take direct um, input from you in the ability for these mixes to have a self-consolidating characteristics and still being able to load, you know, two, 3% loadings of glass fiber. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's all I want to say. It's, um, it's a question. There's two questions that, are perpetual. They just continue no matter what. How do I seam two pieces of melamine together? That's question number one that never seems to get answered. Or everybody has, I would say. Everybody has that yeah. question. Number two is, do the fibers show in SEC if I just pour it in? That's the yeah. second question. So to answer the first question that always gets asked, don't seam two pieces of melamine together unless you're going to do dusty crete or something that you're nah, going to really... cover it. Yeah, yeah if you're going to... Well, if you're doing something like Dusty Crete that has a very highly textured surface, you can hide that seam. But if you're doing an SEC GFRC that's kind of an as-cast surface, what I mean by that is you're going to just minimally process it, acid etch it, and then seal it, you're never going to get rid of that seam. So, or if you're going to do terrazzo, which we'll talk about terrazzo in a minute, but then you can then you can seam melamine because you're going to polish it all sure. out. You're not going to see it. But if you're doing a more uniform finish, which is what I do, then you can't seam it. And if you're going to do that, then use a piece of plastic, essentially build a big table, cover it with a piece of plastic, a quarter inch polycarbonate, and you'll be good. But the second part of that question is glass fibers that always gets asked. And the short answer is, if your mix is the proper consistency, and if you're using the proper fibers, and if you're casting into the proper mold materials. Number one, consistency. Where people make mistakes is they try to do an SEC GFRC with a low quality, like 50-50 sand and cement. When we say 50-50, we're saying 50% sand, 50% cement. 
it's just a general term, but it's a very basic mix. Those types of mixes are much more susceptible to the fibers ghosting. So if you're using a 50-50 mix, problematic. If you over-plasticize your mix, and certain plasticizers inherently are problematic, then the fibers want to drop out of suspension and they want to end up on the surface. So if you over-plasticize, that's problematic. Yep. So you want to use a correct mix, you want to be plasticized at the correct level. The second thing is your, what you're casting into. Right? Did I did I miss yep. something? Mix plasticizer. Okay, and then and then casting. No, and then what you're casting on? Yeah, yeah. Ca- so, or casting in. Yeah. yeah. So if you're casting against a, a hard surface like melamine, plastic, steel, anything like that, the fibers when you agitate the table, when you give it a little shake, if you tap on a table with a hammer a couple times, a rubber mallet, it gets the fibers to bounce up off that surface. So when you flip it over, there's no fibers ghosting. Where I've seen this not work is if I pour into a rubber mold. So I have rubber molds for tables, these round tables. And if I pour an SEC into the rubber mold and I shake the rubber mold and I do all my normal stuff, when I flip it over, they're ghosted. And I think the reason is it doesn't bounce the fibers. It deadens right. that, that you know shock wave. So instead of them lifting, they just stay. You drop it a couple times and they just... Stay right there against the surface. When I flip it over, I see these fibers ghosted. So that's that's that. That's my advice. And then don't don't over vibrate. You know, back in the day, I still have some, but there's high frequency vibrators, and that was what was traditionally used in precast concrete that had steel reinforcement, i.e., uh, wire mesh and rebar. And so they would use these high frequency vibrators to get that mix to consolidate into those forms. But if you use that type of vibration on an SCC GFRC mix, the fibers drop out of suspension. So if you do any vibration whatsoever, it needs to be low amplitude, typically rubber mallets, tap, 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 yeah, tap, 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 tap. You're yeah. good. Because all you're trying to do is get those little tiny air pockets in the corners to come up out of there. And that's all That's all you're really trying to do with it. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, I'm going to say the, I guess for anybody who's just absolutely concerned with that, then there are ways of, you know, minimizing that concern. And that would be, we'll use half inch AR bundle glass instead of the three quarters, which just means they're a little bit smaller and less propensity just, you know, cause of the three quarter inch fibers, I think those are a 250 techs and the half inch or 175, or maybe it's 150 and 125. Anyway, they're just, they're, they're a little bit smaller, a little stealthier, little bit, you know, not a lot, but a little bit. And then ultimately, if it's still a concern and you don't run enough samples to convince yourself otherwise, then really your only choice is to use a combination of glass with the PVA. And when I say PVA, again, primary reinforcement PVA fibers, which would be the 100s or the PVA 400s in combination. And those you can grind pretty deep with them and be... What I'm looking, they're um, they're still translucent. So grinding into them, if you look close enough, you'll know what you're looking for. Uh, but nobody else is going to know. So that I mean, that's that's my only advice. But the reality is, I think most people that are casting SCC with glass fiber, I mean, especially with the Owens Corning, it's just not an issue. Yeah, it's, it's it hasn't concerned. been an issue for me. Yeah. So maybe I'm lucky. It's truly not. But I don't think so, it, it's luck. I just think it's mix, mix design. Your quality of your mix is good. Your consistency is good. You have a plasticized right. You're pouring into a form that is, you know, if it's all rubber, you're probably going to have problems. But if it's fiberglass, plastic, steel, melamine, you're going to be all right. And then just a low amplitude vibration, and you'll be fine. Yep, and be fine. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And the best thing of all is is cast a few pieces that way. And then move your mix around until it fits. And I say all this because for most of us moving forward, you know, maybe people still doing mass panels or something like that. But for what we do in our shops, man, the uh, the the spring, the you know, brushing, the steps involved, you know, blah 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 blah. You know, it, t- it would take a pretty, pretty special project for me anymore to walk away from how simple SEC is, comparatively speaking. 
Seriously. Yeah. I mean, the steps, the rolling, the laminating, you know, various, it's just, to me, all those steps, aside from the fact that there's so many of mistakes that could be made along the way versus pouring. I don't know, man. I don't know. And I think that's where, I don't know, I could put a percentage, but most of us have moved away from that. Yeah. Mainly. Yeah. Because it, it is so labor intensive and so fraught with potential problems that creating a two part mold and pouring proper mixes, it's, it's been a game changer. Yeah. It's all I've done for over a decade. That's all I've done. Yeah. I moved away from spraying so long ago. There's not enough money in the world for that level of pain. I just don't want it. I don't need it. There's no reason for it. There was a time and a well, place in my life. Do, yeah. There was a time and a place in my yeah. life where I felt that that was the best way, that it was the most cost-effective way, that it was the easiest way, whatever. Mm-hmm. After doing that for, I don't know, seven, eight years, I figured out, no, that's not true. The, the best way for quality, consistency, for running a business is SEC, GFRC. The downside is you have to pour into a two-sided form or a multi-part form. And you have to contain the mix where if you're spraying a face coat and you're hand packing, it's a one-sided form. And so you're like, oh, I'm saving all this time. But no, bro. No. Because well, I can come in and mix an SEC important to a form and clean up and be gone in two hours. If I'm doing a sprayed face coat, Jesus, I'm there for six, seven hours babysitting that thing as I spray and I brush and I wait and then I hand pack on a little bit and I wait and I hand pack on a little bit and I wait and I hand pack on a little bit and I wait. You know, it's just this whole thing. Uh, and then when I demold it, there was sand in the corner over here. Or it bonded to the, the face, dried out a little bit too much here, and it ripped away from the yep. form. There's all those things where the hose drug through the face coat and it left this spot. Or, you know, there's just like a million things that can go sideways. <laughs> you remember that time when you, I, uh, you invited me out to the workshop? This is a time when you were going through your vegan stuff, remember? Well, Which was awesome food, by the way. Mm-hmm. But you were going through your uh, vegetarian thing. And we were running the workshop I don't remember, but anyway, it was uh, fabric forming. <laughs> See, again, this is what makes me think, and I'm laughing, but when the attendees and everything had their backs turned, I walked over <laughs> and I put my handprint in the face coat. <laughs> you remember that? I remember that. What I remember, dude, you were so pissed when we demolded that thing the next day. Uh, who did this? And I'm like, oh, shit. I guess this isn't as funny as I thought it was going to be. But my point to that is, yes, that's some of the stuff that made me really dislike the whole process of that is there's, it was so fraught with mistakes that I've literally, as I sometimes get on the forum and I watch, you know, I I love to see what people are doing. It's awesome. But I have to admit, it's kind of mind boggling that I see veterans if that's what we're going to call them, guys that have been doing this kind of stuff for a long time that are still doing the spray process for something. Well, what appears to be like a countertop or a tabletop or in other words, this, this rectangular something and they're still spraying it and spraying it. And I mean, I don't know. I just, for me personally, I don't understand it anymore. I think they're afraid the fibers are going to show. I used to feel that way. I mm. used to think the fiber is going to show. So Hiram Ball was who I learned GFRC from. And when I say learned, he didn't teach me GFRC. He told me the process verbally. Here's what you need to do. Go out and get a hopper gun, okay? Here, I'm going to send you a mix using Forton. You're going to mix it up. You're going to pour it in there. You're going to spray that in. He didn't teach me about brushing the corners. He didn't, and all that stuff I figured out on my own over time. That's, that's how I learned GFRC or the process anyways. So I, Hiram never said you can direct cast GFRC. He never said that. And I just assumed you couldn't. And so for all those years, I did hundreds, if not thousands of countertops over years where I sprayed a face coat and brushed it and then brushed the corners and then sprayed again and then cut the top off that overspray and then mixed up SEC and poured it in the whole thing. I did that for years until one time I had extra SEC left over and I just poured it into a form. And the next day I came over and I popped a piece out and there was no fibers. I'm like, what the hell is yeah, this? Right. The hell is this? Right. Nobody told me yeah. this. Nobody told me I could just pour it in. 
Yeah. I assumed, you know, what's the thing about assume? You make an ass out of you and me. I assumed that that couldn't be done. And when I realized that it could, you could just mix up SEC, GFRC, and pour it in. That was a game changer for me, personally. But then I had to unlearn my thinking that one-sided molds were more cost-effective due to time. I, I right. ingrained that in my mind as being the right way because I can just brad nail this mold together. There's no pressure exerted. I'm spraying with a face coat. I'm hand packing. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. You know, come apart. So I had to unlearn that thinking and, and kind of recalibrate the way I approached it to where I might spend two more hours building a form, but I spend eight less hours casting in my recast rate drops dramatically because I don't have the sandy corners and the hose to drag through and the piece to delaminate. I don't have any of that crap. So it it was far more cost-effective as a business to do SEC GFRC. Now, if you love spraying face coats and doing it, keep doing it. We're not, I, I have no vendetta against that method. I'm just saying I did it for long enough that me personally I came to terms that it was not the the right way for me, but it might be for you. Well, see, that's what I, I mean, if a, if a shop is still running enough production, we did it at Epic one time when he came out and he had the, I'm going to call it the back hopper gun, you know, where it was pulling the glass off a reel and, you know, the You're chopping about, it um, as it sprayed. Hiram or Tim? Uh, Tim. Yeah, Tim When he came Tim out Ross. with that gun. So, yeah. I mean, with that... Yeah, we, you know, did this, remember it's, it's where Dusty was, took his photo standing on when he, when he won that one year, Yeah, when we were doing the, um, cornhole boards, the, the cornhole boards. Yeah. 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 But anyway, I, what I'm saying is, so with that process, to me, it, that made sense because you sprayed everything, but when, you know, and, and then it was going through this big machine and and glass chopper and blah, 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 blah. And it was step after step after step after step. There was no time in between and you kept rolling along. But if you remember, it kept malfunctioning. Well, it did keep malfunctioning. And and that's nothing to do with Tim. That's just, it's a very messy process of pushing concrete through a hose and chopping strand, doing the whole thing. We saw that at Joe's too, yeah. Yeah, it's fraught with issues. And so if... If you go that route, you're, it's just inherently, it's going to be constant upkeep and a lot of breakdowns where you're fixing stuff. Agreed. And that's and where I'm coming full circle in this. That's, I guess that's where I'm coming from is when I see guys that are still mixing stuff in like, let's say a five gallon bucket or, you know, whatever, and they're pulling just enough face coats to spray a rectangular something and then mixing backer coats up in buckets as well and hand applying them, uh, you know, layering up and laminating and rolling. And then ultimately, I'm going to say technically, they're still putting a back mold because it had a drop, you know, dropped edges or whatever the case. See, that's where that process for me from a time makes it just doesn't make sense. I, I can't equate that into making money unless I drop my hourly rate to, you know, eight bucks an hour or something. Yeah. By the time, you know, all those steps, you're still putting backer on there, you know, and and there's something comparatively speaking to mixing up and pouring it. It just doesn't, I'm not someone would, I would need a lot more education, which I thought I've really tried to do, but it never showed me that going through those steps in my shop equated to making, you know, the business the way I wanted to and the profit that I wanted to. So that's what I'll say. I agree, John. Those lines. I agree yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I think most other people are, are coming to that too. Yeah. Hey, hold on a second. I'm gonna grab a water. Hold on. Is this where I get to start singing like last time when you were going to sing? I can't even think of a song. All right. Let's see here. Get these back in. All right, you there? Yeah. Um, I almost started singing like that time you did, but I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't come up with a song. <laughs> I like big butts and I cannot lie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's the one that comes to mind first for me. So what I was going to say is, uh, I was saying, never underestimate hydraulic pressure. I have stickers made that say never underestimate hydraulic pressure. And it's a lesson that I continue to learn 
It's a lesson that everybody that goes the SEC GFRC route or just quote unquote traditional concrete where you're pouring into forms, it's it's a lesson that is never ending. You'll never master the process of underestimating hydraulic pressure because you're always going to underestimate hydraulic pressure. Even when you think I overbrace this thing, it's going to find a spot where it comes out, some concrete leaks out. It's just inevitable. It's part of it. Now, every now and then you'll hear somebody say, it's not hydraulic, it's hydrostatic, hydrostatic mm-hmm. pressure. And they think they caught me. It's like, oh, I got them. Let me tell you something, John. Hydrostatic pressure, hydrostatic means water at rest. That's what it means, hydrostatic, water at rest. So if I pour concrete, SEC, GFRC, into a form and I leave it. I don't touch it. I just pour it in and I walk away. That's hydrostatic pressure. That's not my concern. My concern is when I slosh the form, when I tap it with a hammer, when I shake the table, the forces that are generated momentarily, but it's momentary force, is hydraulic pressure, not hydrostatic, hydraulic pressure. And so when you agitate the concrete, it spikes forces on the form temporarily, but all it takes is that thousandth of a second for that force to shoot through the roof for that form to come apart. And that's what people see. You'll, you'll make a planter and you'll pour it in. It's great. And you shake it and it just falls apart, right? The mold just cracks open and all the concrete comes out. It wasn't the hydrostatic pressure that was the problem. It's the hydraulic pressure. So that's, that's uh, when, when you hear the terminology and people try to correct you, at least you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about hydrostatic. The other thing I want to say too is a misconception a lot of people have about pressure when they're doing an SEC is they think that the thickness of the piece is the is what's generating pressure. So they think, you know, this planter is only one inch thick. It's not going to be very much pressure. But if I did a five oh, yeah, inch thick, they think of the weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I did a five inch thick, it's going to be a lot of pressure. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with the thickness. It has to do with the height, the height of the the mold. So the higher the mold gets, the greater the pressure. And the pressure is concentrated at the bottom of the mold. So the higher you now, get. Now, do we know that? Do we know why that happens? John, let me finish what I'm saying. Hang on, but it's someone's law. There's a law that actually will tell you why this happens. <sighs> You're hurting my soul right now. Sorry. <laughs> I brought it up several times. <laughs> it's, it's one of Newton's laws. <sighs> yeah. Murphy's Newton. law is what you're no, doing right now. Newton. It's Newton's law. All right, go ahead. What were All you right. going to say? Something about Newton's law? That's a good law? question. What was I going to say, John? No, I wasn't going to say anything about Newton's law. I don't give a shit about Newton's law. No, you did. You were talking about oh, it. It's not God. a difference in how thick it is. It's the height. If, okay. I want to hit something else. It's not height. There's no TH. It's height. Well, it depends where you're from from. No. From from. It's same. Just like it's again. Sacramento. It's height. <laughs> <laughs> oh god you gotta go with it man you know well, it was funny it's, somebody corrected me years ago on that my architect uh, buddy that uh that helps me with some of my stuff um him and i were talking first the first mistake i made was i called the footings footers he's like don't ever say yeah. that i'm like why he's like it's not a footer he's like that's such that's such a backwoods thing he's like it's footing that's the term footing not footer footing and i remembered that ever since and i've always called it footing ever since the second thing was i was talking i'm like i'm like hey what's the height of that he's like the what the height. He's like, dude, there's there's no age. I'm like, but width and length. He's like, yeah, but height is height, height, and uh, he's right. And so, height. Uh, anyways, yeah, it's the silent one. It's See, silent look, look, look how you derailed my whole conversation, John. Look Sorry. at this. Look at this. <laughs> Murphy's Law, right now, John. See? That's because I just want. And to you get live you Newton. in Murphy's, Newton's California. Law. Murphy's That's Law. Right. Look at you. Yeah. So, anyways, back to what I was saying is the higher the form, the greater the pressure. And the pressure is greatest at the bottom of the form. And so when you're building a form, that's what you have to watch out for. Um, If I did a piece that's 50 feet across, but it's only an inch high, there's no pressure. But if I do a piece that's one inch across, but 10 feet high, there is a massive amount of pressure at the bottom of that form. So it's the height. And the easiest way to think about this, the easiest way to think about this, John, is the ocean, the ocean. It's a great analogy. It's one I've always remembered. The ocean is a massive body of water, massive, hundreds and millions of square miles of water. And you stick your finger in it and it doesn't crush your finger. It doesn't matter how far across it is. It doesn't crush your finger. But the deeper you go, the greater the pressure. Think about those poor guys in that sub that, you know, imploded. 
the deeper you go, the greater the pressure. And so that is what you have to think. It's the depth. That's what you have to think about. Yeah. It's not how far across it is. So anyways, that's, that's my little lesson about um, if you're going to do SEC, GFRC. All right, enough about that. Uh, the last thing, John, before we... Wait, did we talk about Newton's Law? Oh, jeez. You know what? I'm gonna save. I'm gonna save these other nuggets that we we're gonna talk about because we're already gone an hour. And are we really? Yeah, we could go. We we still have three things left on this list. We only covered three, so we'll save those for the next podcast. But let me hit something really important, John. We have yes. a fundamentals concrete workshop scheduled. So here's what's been going on: is I scheduled a workshop for December fourth and fifth for GFRC and fabric forming, and I received a ton of questions, but. All the questions were from people saying, is this suitable for beginners? Every question I got essentially was that, that question. Hey, you know, I want to come, but is this a good starting point? Is this good for beginners? Blah, blah, blah. And so for years, you and I have been talking about, we should do a basics class. Yeah. We should do a basics class. Now there's freebie classes out there, but those are sales pitches. Those are product demonstrations. And I'm not opposed to product demonstrations. We will do that with Kodiak Pro. But a product demonstration is how to use the materials. It's not a class on the basics. So this is a dedicated class to the fundamentals. This is step one. You know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And this is the first step in your journey. And so what this is, it's a one and a half day class. Um, we're going to cover templating. We're going to cover form building. We're going to cover how to calculate how much concrete mix you'll need. We're going to cover the tools you need to use and how to use them properly. We're going to cover how to batch, uh, how to mix, how to cast, because there are techniques to casting and there's things you should do and things you shouldn't do. Um, we're going to talk about curing. We're going to talk about, we're going to do demolding of the piece and there's ways to do that and ways not to do that. There's a lot of mistakes people make when they demold where they, where they damage the piece that they put all this time energy into. Uh, we're going to go over how to slurry any little imperfections. Hopefully you don't have any, but if you did, I'll show you how to fix them. Uh, I'll show you how to seal, and then we'll talk about installation. How do you install? What do you do? And so it's a one and a half day class. It's less than a thousand bucks. That's the other thing I want to do is I want to do a class that was cost effective for somebody. So it's under a thousand dollars, one and a half day class, and it's going to be a fundamentals workshop. Now the funny thing was I, I changed it over, and I've had people register for the fundamentals, which is great. But now all the questions I've got is like, hey man, where'd the fabric forming class go? You should have registered, bro. Because all the questions I was getting were from people wanting to do a basics class, right? Yeah. And so, which we've never done. We've always—I wouldn't say we've avoided them, but I, you know, I've took for granted. And I'm just throwing it out there. I've I've taken for granted my 20 years of doing this. You forget that there's some people that are still on day one. Yeah. So I've kind of told myself, like, really, I mean, especially now we're talking about concrete materials. Do I want to talk about the different poslins and, you know, cements and sand, which I talk about all the time anyway. I just never wanted to sit down and put them down. But the reality is, you know what? That is something good for people. The, the mass amount of information, um, you know, overlapping information, misinformation, biased information, you know, it, it'd be nice to have some place again for people to go to that when you're starting out, because we were all there, we've all made the, you know, we've made those mistakes we've made. And I, I'm just going to throw out there something simple. It took Brandon Gore showing me how to use a track saw because I wasn't using it properly, which made me not like track saws, <laughs> something that simple uh, and, and now it's made a difference in what I do at the shop. Well, for all these years, concrete design school has really been focused on the most advanced training out there. So techniques that yeah. we've developed as artisans that we then share with other artisans and they're advanced, whether it's fabric forming or dusty create or upright casting or whatever it is, they're advanced techniques. And we have beginners come to every class and, you know, they've always reached out and say, is this beginner's class? Well, no, it's not a beginner's class, but if you're truly passionate, you're going to learn a lot but a lot of it will probably be over your head. You'll, you'll, you'll pick up a lot of things as well, so it's still valuable. That's always been my answer. But we avoided doing a basics class because we always focused on the advanced. Right. But it was really a conversation. So for years and years and years, I've been thinking about doing a fundamentals class, but I didn't. And then I was talking to Sean Albright, and he was saying, you know, the problem that we have at Concrete Design School 
is we're trying to shift people away from bad habits, bad information, bad techniques, whatever it was. We're catching them way down here, and then we're trying to bring them back over here. Like, you know, here's the problems, what you're doing, here's how to fix it. But they've spent years doing it an incorrect way. Yeah. Whether they learned that at some other place that didn't know what they were doing, or they learned it from a TikTok video or YouTube, whatever it is. He, he said, you need to get people at the beginning of the journey. So they're trying to course correct and, you know, show people these techniques down the road, get them, get them up front. He's absolutely right. And so that was like, I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it. And I talked to Sean, I was like, you know what, a fundamentals class and all the questions I was getting were from people asking, is this a good beginner's class? Now's the time to do it. So it was a really good conversation with Sean Albright, which I hope to get him on the podcast here because it was him and I, you know, I hadn't talked to him in years and we, uh, we connected and we talked for like two and a half hours straight. Cool. Yeah, it was a great conversation, but it was really his his swap recipes. <laughs> yeah, it was really his his um, take on concrete design school of like his his terminology was we're trying to course correct people that have essentially learned bad information. Right, and he's absolutely or bad right. Habits. Yeah, that's yeah. what. Yeah, so if we can get him early on and show them the right way to do things. And here's the basics and here's the fundamentals. And you can build on that, but you're getting quality information from people that actually know what they're talking about. Then everybody wins at the end of the day. So I, uh, I agreed with them hundred uh, percent. So we have that. And that's December 4th and 5th. You go to concretedesignschool.com. You can register for that. We already have people registered. So it's hundred percent on. And uh, I hope you come to that. The second thing is the concrete hoedown and a holler, kodiakpro.com. Go up to the store, Training and events, Concrete Hoedown, October 27th and 28th, McEwen, Tennessee. McEwen is outside of Nashville. And this is a gathering. This isn't a class. It's a gathering of concrete aficionados, concrete lovers. If you love concrete and you love talking concrete and you love being around other people that love concrete, come to the Concrete Hoedown in the holler. So we're going to cast concrete. We're going to seal. We're going to do all the fun stuff. But we're also going to have drinks around a fire. You know, we're going to eat great barbecue. And we're just going to have a gathering of passionate people and you're going to make a lot of new friends and you're going to leave that feeling really good about life. So that's Concrete Hoedown and Holler. You can go to KodiakPro.com to register for that. And um, anything else, John? No, I can't think of it. It's been a good podcast. Yeah, man. Good talking to you. Yeah. Glad things are going oh, well. by the way, we're going to have Serho on today, but he's tied up. He wasn't free today. So we're going to try him next week. So... We wanted Serho today. Yeah, we'll keep trying because he's awesome. He's got some great things to say about, you know, what he's done with his business and, and how he continues to flourish in what he's doing. So, yes, which I think extremely helpful to other people. I agree. So Serho hopefully will be on next week's podcast. And then hopefully after that, we can get Sean Albright on and have him on the podcast. So, yeah, we have some good guests lined up. But uh, until next week, John. Until next week, man. Adios, amigo. Adios. Thank you.